I think God calls us to be a why not people. Welcome to the Athens First UMC Sermons Podcast. I'm Sarah Lawing, Director of Online Productions. We hope you'll enjoy this weekly resource. Good morning. The scripture lesson this morning can be found in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the 25th chapter, beginning with verse 29 and continuing through verse 34. It's a scene in the life of two brothers. It's hard to imagine that brothers don't get along beautifully, isn't it? Because they always seem to. My brother was uh, five years older than me, uh, but uh, we competed fiercely and I lost every time. There came a time when I was able to, you know, get old enough where it was a little bit more competitive. But there were so many occasions when I went running into the house after losing another game of marbles or another game of horse or another game of whatever it was. It seems like I came out on the short end uh, so often. But uh, iron sharpens iron, and he made me better. He made me uh, so much better than I would have been. And I love my brother dearly. Um, I remember we were mowing a lawn one time. It was a big lawn, so we were mowing it together. It was a huge lawn, in fact. It was like seven football fields, something like that. (laughs) Biggest lawn you've ever seen. And uh, so we were mowing it together. I think we made $3 a piece or something like that for mowing that grass. But anyway, we were so competitive that as we run around, the last piece was like a big field and it was the easiest to mow because you just could mindlessly move along. He would have a lane and I would have a lane, so we would be cutting two swaths at the same time. And we came to the last little piece of grass, just that small thing where we were going to mow over it and turn the mowers off. And I was set up to mow over it. And he decided that he was going to mow over it because he would be able to tell me that once again, he had won. And so I pushed my mower hurriedly to get that last little bit of grass. And he bumped my mower and knocked his mower up in the air and came down on top of my mower, cutting the tire on the lawnmower to pieces. About 10 minutes later, our dad came to pick us up and he was wondering what happened to that tire and how that possibly could have happened. And so... I think might blame me, and uh, anyway, we got in trouble. That was, that was the nature of our relationship. Uh, not now, but then. Can anybody identify with that at all? <laughs> no one wants to even raise a hand to that? Okay, you're nodding. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, Esau and Jacob were that. They struggled to get along. They struggled to kind of... I'm sure that their parents were concerned about them as my mom and dad were concerned about Mike and me. But here's this first negative encounter. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. And Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. And Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. And Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. It's hard to imagine. There was a time in my life 
when uh, I wasn't very sympathetic to Esau. Have you ever met someone and they didn't make a great first impression? That's rhetorical. You don't have to raise your hand about that one. But they didn't make a great first impression. But over time, you got to know them better and better. And you came to like them very much. You came to appreciate them. Uh, There were qualities that you didn't realize they had, and yet they came out over time. And that would describe my relationship with Esau. Are there biblical characters that your first impression is not great, but over time you read about them, you kind of live into them, you try to see them in your own mind's eye, and over time they become more appealing to you. They become more attractive to you. You identify with them and and you kind of live into a better relationship with them. That's Esau for me. There was a time I didn't have much for Esau. I thought, this guy sold his birthright. He lost his father's blessing. I mean, he was committed to the moment and nothing beyond the moment. He was trapped in the immediate. I don't think that so much anymore. Now, it is true that he, like me and like others, lacked some discipline. He was not a real disciplined person. Discipline is kind of a set of rules, a framework uh, that exists in your life, and you try to adhere to that. Self-discipline means you do it on your own. Parental discipline means your parents enforce it for you. It's kind of like whichever way you want to go. And so I grew up in a home that was a... I would call a disciplined home. What I mean by that, it was a home that was grounded in faith, and it was grounded in love. And those, those were the values and the virtues that were to guide our life together. And we were that kind of home. That did not mean we always got along perfectly. It did not mean everything was grand and glorious. But uh, there was a framework for our living. I went to a college where discipline was the whole thing. It was the main thing. And so you were at breakfast on time and dinner on time and formation on time and class on time and you polished your shoes and shined your brass and got all the lint off your hat and the pants you wore every day felt like boards because they were so starched and the crease would never go out. It was an eternal crease. But that was discipline imposed. When I was going through treatment for, for uh, cancer, The doctor told me at the beginning, you likely are going to receive so much chemotherapy that there'll be issues that come along after this. Now, they won't, you know, take your life and it's worth saving your life to experience the consequences. But the first consequence he mentioned was your sugar levels will change significantly because you're not going to process all that in the same way. And so I I didn't really think too much about it at the time. I was trying to survive cancer. So whatever my sugar did, it just have to do, and I would pay attention to that later. Here's Here's the reality of that. I was here yesterday for a reception, and I looked at a table filled with sugar cookies and chocolate chip cookies and brownies and all manner of sweets and delightful and delicious things. Now, all I have to do is make one disciplined decision. No. You know, no. If I eat that, my sugar goes up. I don't feel well. It's not good for me. Penny reminds me again and again in great detail what it does to your body to have that much sugar in it. She talks about your body rotting on the inside and just 
is, you know. And so she's always playing that note. And, and, and so I stand next to the table and I have a decision to make. And it really doesn't seem like a very difficult decision, does it? Eat a cookie, have a problem. Don't eat a cookie, don't have a problem. It's pretty straightforward and pretty simple. But why is it that too often I reach over there and have eight or ten chocolate chip cookies, <laughs> knowing, knowing that it's going to make me feel bad? knowing that it's bad for me, knowing that it's something that I shouldn't do. Have you ever done anything you shouldn't do? Have you ever done anything in your life for which there were going to be consequences and you knew what those consequences were going to be and they were not going to be favorable to you, but you did it anyway? Has that ever happened in your life? You don't have to answer, I will for you. Yes, yes, yes. That's a matter of discipline, is it not? Well, sure it is. Esau lacked it. I mean, he, he worked hard. He was an outdoorsman. He's a guy that liked to hunt and fish. He would have driven a, a, a pickup truck. He would have been that guy who loved to camp and just loved to be outside. And that's an appealing person to me. He was a strong guy, but sometimes he just... He just wasn't very reflective. He didn't think very carefully about what he was doing. And so in this moment, he's hungry, he's hot. He comes in and he says, Jacob, how about a bowl of stew? And Jacob, who was at home with his thoughts, his name means schemer. And so we, we know what that means. He was reflective. He was someone who was thoughtful in kind of the worst kind of way, and he thinks up, sure, I'll be glad to give you this bowl of stew in exchange for the blessing of the birthright. Well, that was everything. His grandfather was Abraham. His dad was Isaac. Esau was next. He was the next patriarch. But he never became that. Jacob did. Because Esau gave that up for a bowl of lentil stew. Really? Really? That's your story? No one in this sanctuary would want that to be a part of their story. That they made an exchange like that. That they didn't recognize value when they were staring at it. But sometimes you and I... We're strange creatures when it comes to what value we put on certain things. And Esau put more value on a moment in time, a bowl of soup for his birthright. So he did lack discipline and he lacked vision. He was unable to see beyond the moment. And that happens to us too. Sometimes we just can't see over the next hill. And we find ourselves petrified of it. Sometimes we don't, we don't take the moment to reflect on who we are and, and where we want to be going and who we want to become. We all have that problem from time to time. And, and Esau was a person who just lacked vision for himself. And so he made mistake after mistake after mistake, but he had because he had no sense of anything beyond right now. I was reading this week about Joseph Strauss. I was 
long story. I don't need to go into that. But anyway, Joseph Strauss, as you remember, was the architect who was responsible for the Golden Gate Bridge. San Francisco is quite a piece of real estate. And when Strauss stood on a windswept hill in 1918 and looked out over that span, he imagined a, he imagined a bridge to cover that span. It was beyond anyone else's imagination because he spent 15 years trying to get people to understand one, it could be done, and two, it would be worth paying for. Finally, in 1933, they began the project, and in 1937, they completed the project. He also instituted during that time these nets beneath the workers. It was a kind of, I don't know, it, it was not based on anything concrete, but it was a thinking during that time for every million dollars you spent on a construction project, you lost a worker. He knew the project was going to be $35 million and he thought about losing those 35 uh, workers. So he ordered these trapeze nets that he put beneath the bridge as they were constructing it so that if anyone fell, rather than falling to the sea at 80 miles per hour into a brick wall basically, uh, they would fall into a net. He was a, person, he was a person who saw things other people didn't see. Some men see things as they are and ask why, and others dream things that never were and ask why not. He was a why not guy. I think God calls us to be a why not people. If you read the Scriptures and become familiar with the story again and again and again, people are asking, well, why not? Why not? It doesn't seem plausible. It doesn't seem possible, but why not? Because if God is in it, it's possible. And so again and again throughout Scripture, we see that story unfold. Because people are imbued with vision, not Esau. Esau had very little vision. But let me say this on this Father's Day. We're going to take a turn for a minute. He had a lousy dad. And he had a lousy mom. You see, they favored one child over the other. And they wrecked their family. Isaac favored Esau, but he never really taught him anything. And Rebekah favored Jacob. And she schemed with him to take everything from the other child. These two boys had lousy parents. And that matters. That matters so much. It was a long time before we could have funerals in this place. Before we could gather in here and celebrate a life. And that was the worst part for me of the pandemic in terms of how it affected the church. And so they were limited and they were outside, if at all. When we came back, We've had several funerals here. Three of those funerals have been for three men in the life of our church. 
Dan Blitch, and Hank Huckabee. And yesterday, Jerry Firth. Three of three giants in the life of this church. Three men who made such an incredible difference in my life. Three men who encouraged me every time I saw them. Three men who made me better. Three dads committed to their wives and their kids. Three men who lived with an integrity between their faith and their life. Yesterday we celebrated Jerry's life. You know those folks that you look forward when you see them coming? And you know those folks who you don't necessarily have that feeling when you see them coming? Jerry Firth. I loved it when I saw him coming. Because I knew he had something good for me. And I'm that selfish. He would come and he would always have a good word for me. He would always make a difference in the day that I was experiencing. So I stood here yesterday and I said he was a balcony guy. And that comes from a church father in the fourth century, Gregory of Nyssa. Let's get a little bit heady for a minute. There is a letter that Gregory writes to a novice, someone he was discipling, someone he was pouring his life to, and here's what he writes. At horse races, the spectators intent on victory shout to their favorites in the contest. From the balcony, they incite the rider to keener effort, urging the horses on while leaning forward and flailing the air with their outstretched hand instead of a whip. Then he says this to this young man, Most valued friend and brother, while you are competing admirably in a divine race, straining constantly for the prize of the heavenly calling, I exhort, urge, and encourage you vigorously. That was Dan, and that was Hank, and that was Jerry. Good dads. Good men. Esau, to some degree, is a reflection of his dad. But somewhere along the way, if you keep reading his story, 
somebody filled his tank. I don't know who it was. I can't do exegesis on it because I'm doing what we call eisegesis is when you just use your imagination. I just know his life was transformed from this moment to a few chapters later. You see, Jacob had done nothing to deserve Esau's love. Jacob had schemed him out of everything. But when the time came for them to be reconciled, who took the first step? It was Esau. He ran to Jacob and Jacob was terrified because Jacob thought he was running to him to take his life. And Esau was running to him to love him. Somewhere along the line, somebody poured into Esau. Wasn't his dad, but it was somebody. And that changed his life. And that responsibility does not just fall to fathers, that falls to Christians to invest in each other, not with fault-finding and balloon deflation, but with words of encouragement and care. Lifting one another up. I left this funeral yesterday and I got into my car and I drove off and I had two miles left. You ever been that close? I had two miles. And I decided I would go, you know, I'd risk it a little bit. I made my way to one of those stations that has 7,000 pumps and it was packed. And I drove around and around and around until I could get a spot. And I thought, Lord, I'm going to run out of gas at the gas station because I can't get a pump, right? Jerry Firth, he filled my tank. So did Ian Kirkby. And so did Dan Blitch. We need that. It changes us. We need to get better at that. I know I do. I have good memories. And I'm so grateful. for the lives of those three men. I never preach on my dad. I talk about him a lot, but I try to separate it from like Father's Day or something like that because it's just, it's too hard. It's too hard. For better, uh, I say he was the most influential person in my life. And uh, there were times when he would tell me to do something or tell me to memorize something. 
And I usually I would roll my eyes and think, oh, good Lord. Some of you teenagers may feel like that now. You won't always feel like that. One day, <clears throat> he asked me to memorize something, and, and I say it all the time, this poem, and I know now why. He was always trying to, you know, pass something along that would uh, stay with me. And I quoted it yesterday at the funeral because it so describes Jerry. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself. When all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think but not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth. and everything that's in it, and what is more. Uh, you'll be a man, my son. I think that. Dan Blidge and Hank Huckabee Jerry Firth and Charles Hodges were that stable person who was so solid and so faithful and so invested. And that's the kind of father I've tried to be and want to be. Esau needed a good dad. And so do we all. Thanks for listening. To listen to more sermons, read past devotions, or look up opportunities on how to connect, visit us at AthensFirstUMC.org. Stay in touch with us throughout the week by following us on Instagram or Facebook at AthensFirstUMC. Oh Lord, I'm getting